John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hi, this is Steve. Hollywood loves heroes. We love watching Captain America strap on his shield and fight for what's right, for no other reason than that it is what's right. And just about all of us wish our leaders in the real world would have such simple, honest, and fundamentally altruistic motivations. Unfortunately, the truth, particularly when it comes to humans, is never simple. People are complicated, and those who aspire to greatness, who have the drive and talent to achieve, are often the most complicated, the most conflicted, the most difficult people of all. Whether it's T.E. Lawrence riding across the great Nefu Desert to attack Aqaba from the land, Charles Foster Kane writing his Declaration of Principles, or Howard Beale saying he's mad as hell and he's not going to take it anymore, you cannot separate the actions from the flawed human beings that made them. After all, how many directors have we discussed on the cinephiles whose genius is only matched by their unreasonable demands, obsessive perfectionism, and abusive behavior? The question we are forced to wrestle with is, is it worth it? No movie, in my opinion, brings that question into sharper relief than Patton, starring George C. Scott. In Act 2 of this great film, we see Patton at his worst and at his best, rallying his troops and descending into self-pity, acting decisively under fire and lashing out self-destructively when the war is over. So if you still haven't seen this amazing film, your orders are to visit cinephiles.net where you can buy or stream Patton along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. And if you support us on patreon.com slash the cinephiles at the it's who you know level, you now have access to newly remastered versions of our multi-part episodes. Citizen Kane and The Dark Knight are already available, with Lawrence of Arabia, Ben-Hur, and Taxi Driver coming soon. So that's combined episodes of our multi-part classics on Patreon and part two of Patton this Friday on The Cinephiles. 
I'm not going to wait. Not an hour. Not a minute. It's going to keep moving. Is that clear? We're going to attack all night. We're going to attack tomorrow morning. If we are not victorious, let no one come back alive. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where we continue our exploration of Patton, starring George C. Scott. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hey everyone, my name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, uh, writer, producer, host, and CEO of the Outlaw Nation, and uh, excited to be back to finish out our conversation on one of my favorite movies ever made, Patton. And and I have one thing I want to ask before yeah. we get started. It's just this is a completely random thing, but it came up via Twitter, and I want to send this question out to uh, all the cinephiles out there, which is that I, I mentioned a few weeks ago that uh, I'm not teaching right now; that I've been mm. off. And one of uh, the Cinephiles fans on Twitter said, well, have you ever thought about teaching an online directing course? Oh. And I went, I could easily teach an online directing course. I have dozens of lectures. I have exercises. I have, you know, clips from movies. I have all the material. I even have contact with a great cinematography teacher and screenwriting mm -hmm. teachers and things like that. And so I just wanted to throw out to the people listening right now is taking an online directing course something that people out there would be interested in? Because nice. if it is, then maybe I will figure out how to do it. So that's my question. Uh, hit me up on Twitter, at SR Morris, um, and let me know what you're thinking. And if, there are, uh, if there's a groundswell of interest, maybe there will be the Cinephile School of Directing starting oh, oh, oh. in the fall. Um, maybe even have some guest lectures from the outlaw. Uh, listen, there should be a, definitely a, 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 a branch of this thing to teach them some voiceover acting or a vo or acting period. I, I, I think this is a good class or a good, a good university. I actually think that's a great idea. And, and it's so funny, like now that we've shifted to this online remote thing that I'm getting kind of good at, it's like, well, why yeah. can't we do that? Of course. There's no reason why we couldn't. We're surviving uh, doing everything virtually. I don't think we've missed a beat on this show or the Top 10 show or anything else. Yeah. I love doing it virtually, and I think it works so well. Uh, and I don't think anything's been lost. I think everything is still working fine, and the fans are loving the episodes. I, I, I agree. I was really nervous about it, as you know, because mm. – and I do love being in the room with you. There's something special about, you know, like – but the, the fact is I'm looking at your face right now. I can still tell when you've got something to say. <laughs> of course. Like, it's still really clear. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so we're, we're here to continue to talk about Patton. And here's the thing. This has happened many, many times on the show, which is when we do break it up into two recording sessions like this, yeah, stuff comes up in my brain oh, yeah, yeah. that wouldn't have come up if we had if we'd just done it all at once. And here's the big epiphany I had that I wanted to share is I was thinking about this character of Patton. And I was thinking about this guy who is brilliant and difficult and emotional and unpredictable and yeah. angry and just self-destructive. And I suddenly went, oh, my God, I have had this person in my life. Wow. And that person is Mike Hoover, who you've heard me talk oh, yeah, about yeah. over and over and again on the yeah. show, is that he is brilliant. He has a huge temper. There's even a name for it, which we call getting hoovenated, which <laughs> Peter Brown, who had been working on one of the shark shows before I showed up, said, well, we, he gave me kind of the lowdown on Hoover yeah. and Hoover is irascible and difficult and unpredictable. Yeah. And the big thing, and also is, you know, my most important mentor. And so I'm yeah. grateful that I had him in my life. And there was also have been times where I've had to distance myself from him because 
he is a difficult person. Yeah. And, and what's so, and what made me think about it so much is that if everything Patton decided was the right decision for the right set of reasons, Mm -hmm. then we would, could just like sign off on him and being like, yeah, he's difficult, but it's all for the good. But the thing with Patton, and this is the thing that made me think about Hoover is, yeah. Sometimes the, that's the decision he made because that's the decision, the mood he was in at the moment or the emotion right. where he was. Right. And then he, def- and then he uh, rationalized and explained, well, of course, we had to do it this way because of this and this and this. And it's like, no, that's not why. That's, yeah. And that's the overall frustrating thing about Patton is he knows almost immediately, in the movie at least, uh, when he's gone too far. And instead, of, and we mentioned this in the first part, instead of sticking to his convictions of what he believes, the second he's presented with the possible loss of status or, uh, or command or uh, respect or, you know, just the possibility to be in the mix and be seen as a hero, uh, he immediately retracts or tries to back it up. Or try, but in, when he's in the mood, when he's in that mood, he can't see the bigger picture. He is so focused on the immediate thing in front of his face that he can't see the bigger picture. And it's not till later that uh, he understands the ramifications of what he's done but he's such a, such a mercurial person that it's almost impossible for people around him to be able to function in that sphere without uh, having an incredible amount of patience and I well, and this, that's the same thing on the hoover side of things yeah well and this is where like intent matters yeah. why did you do what you because because so much of the patent's motivations for doing things are all about patent they're yes. not about winning the war and sometimes and when the the grandiose nature, and this is what we're totally going to get into in Act Two, is when his view of himself mm-hmm. aligns perfectly with what the army has to do. Yeah. He's awesome. Yes, but absolutely. when they split apart, and he wants this, but maybe that's not the right thing. That's where we get into some trouble. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, so we're in our intermission. We're listening to our music in in the black. And, and one thing I should say, we talked about the what's the kind of the reincarnation theme, which mm-hmm. is the. But we haven't talked about what is my favorite part of the theme, which again, we hear in the intermission, which is the rousing, fun march, which is... It's so much fun, and that's what's so interesting as we get into Act 2, is we are going to go, I think, even more than Act 1, of the highs of... Yeah. Fun adventure. This is great. Was so much fun to be with Patton and some deep, deep, deep lows. <laughs> Yeah, he's, uh, I don't know. I mean, once, yeah, like you said, we're going to confront all of that in this second, epi- second episode. And, um, you know, I, I think there are some lessons for people to learn. I agree. Second episode, second uh, part of the show. Well, let's get right into Act yeah. Two. We show up and we hear some applause, and we're in Corsica, and there is Patton making a speech in French, being translated by Cobb, his right hand man, and the French is just eating it up, and he's talking about De Gaulle and Leclerc, and then he even, you know, has this great line where he says, "Comme les troupes de la France libre, on débarque ici en Corse pour libérer." La terre natale de Napoléon, je débarquerai bientôt en France et t'aiderai à la libération de la terre natale de Lafayette. Just as free French troops landed here in Corsica to liberate the birthplace of Napoleon, I will land in France to help liberate the birthplace of Lafayette. Yeah. 
That's a great speech. Good job. I think George Patton has learned to kind of control his mouth and just say the right thing. He's going to do great. And particularly now he's going to go talk to some reporters and immediately they're going at him. It was reported that you wrote the mother of the boy is slapped saying the yellow rat should have been shot. Is that true, General? No comment. Yeah, right off the bat, man. Yep. And, you know, it's funny, Steve, this is 1970, right? And this is dialogue written by Francis Ford Coppola, right? Uh, how prescient is it still in 2020 to see someone being confronted by a reporter uh, immediately trying to get a scoop or trying to get clicks, as they say nowadays, or clickbait stuff or trying to get him to say the wrong thing so they can sell papers? So. This is so funny that it's still happening, never changes. Everyone thinks it's new and it's gotten worse. It's always been the same. It's always been happening since the dawn of papers, uh, newspapers uh, in this country. Um, And Patton says the only thing you can say to that kind of question, which is no comment. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because there is no anytime if you engage in the question, we're already in trouble. Yeah. So he says no comment, and then and then someone else asks him, "You plan on slapping any soldiers here?" And uh, and he pauses, and he just turns and walks away. And this is again where you see that this is the seventies. This is not Lawrence of Arabia because there's that weird low angle looking up at him walking oh, yeah. away, yeah. and it's visually just totally different from what we think of as the classic epic war movie. Um, it's very very different, yeah. and. Uh, and of course, we hear that he's heading off to Malta. So we cut to Germany, and they're going Malta. <laughs> well, so what's the plan? Because this is the thing we're going to see throughout the second act. As they go, Patton's the best general. Clearly, he is at the forefront of the invasion of Europe, and so they're desperately trying to figure out what he's doing. Yeah. Which, of course, he's doing nothing. Right. <laughs> we're in Malta, and he's given a history lesson. In fifteen twenty-eight. These forts were defended by 400 knights of Malta and 800 mercenaries against a force of uh, 40,000 Turks. And it talks about the defense of Malta against the Turks. And then after, he turns to Cobb and, and says, no word for Mike? Yeah. Not, not even a response to the turkeys I sent him on Christmas. <laughs> He's so... He's almost like a child in this moment, isn't he? Like waiting oh, yeah. for approval from his dad, and he knows he's done wrong. And so he's like, oh, yeah, not even with the turkeys. I says, he almost feels like, yeah, hurt, just hurt, legitimately hurt by the fact that he can't just woo this person back on his side. You know, well, this is, it, And this has always been his pattern. You imagine, Steve, from watching this movie, this has always been his pattern. Go too far and then send something to kind of say, I'm sorry, let me back in. And they let him back in, but the stakes – were too high for him to pull these antics uh, during a war like this against a foe like the Nazis. I hadn't thought about it until you said it, but it's it's this is actually classic codependent behavior, which oh, yeah. is the the I'm the drunk who who freaks out on my family, and then I buy everyone presents and make this special day. So everyone, yep. so you know, you take someone right to the edge of leaving you, and then you do the super nice stuff and bring them back. Yeah, and, and my guess is based on this movie, Patton's done this a lot. Yeah. Throughout yeah. his whole career. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but right now, and I would say this is among the classiest moments we see from Patton, which is he says to his staff, you boys have hitched your wagon to a fallen star. Mm. Pass the word. If anyone wants out, I'll understand. Yeah. That's a truly classy moment, I think, of Patton, although a bit self-pitying, maybe. 
I think that's where I go more than classy. Yeah. I go more like, oh, he wants to feel noble or act mm. noble in that moment. But what he's really doing is a kind of low key or passive aggressively testing the loyalty of the people around him and playing victim. He's playing victim. Absolutely. Well, and that's that's in the next moment of privacy with Cobb. He says, up in London, they're planning the invasion of Europe. That's what I've trained my whole mind, body and spirit for. In God's name, what am I doing here? Again, still not happy. Again, wanting more. You know, you know what's interesting because he was an Olympian. Is yes. is that sort of the way he talks about this? Is like this is the Olympics. This is I've been in training. Yeah. The Olympics are happening right now, and for some reason, I'm not able to go to the games. Right. Um, and he says, "Let's go to Cairo to see if the pyramids are still standing." Cut to Germany, <laughs> and they're going Cairo. <laughs> What's he doing in Cairo? Um, and they're coming up with all these. Oh, he's probably meeting with the Yugoslavians or the Greeks, and maybe that means they're going to attack through Greece, and that's going to be. They're scrambling, and the Steiger, the guy who's been sort of the patent researcher, is like, "No, I think he might be about to be court-martialed because of this slap." And the Germans are going, "That's crazy." Because Germans are like, oh, we'd love a general like this. Yeah. Yeah. We're in London, uh, and they bring Patton into some rooms that are like the frilliest um, pink rooms with this mirror on the ceiling. Yeah. You see Patton's reaction of like, oh, they're just messing with me. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. First, let me put you straight about Ike. We hear a lot about you criticizing his decisions. Nah, not really. You know me. I'm just an old fool. So the first thing he says is, oh, don't worry about me. But that doesn't say I haven't done it. Right. Right. And then he's the, and he's then immediately he, trying to undercut what he's done and, and make it not seem that big of a deal. And then he still can't sh- shut up because the next thing he says is, sometimes I do wonder whether he isn't a limey at heart. <laughs> right. The shot. He has <laughs> to get the shot in. Well, and it's like literally this guy has come in from Ike saying, we hear you're criticizing Ike. You shouldn't do that. And he goes, oh, don't. No, I didn't. And then immediately criticizes Ike. Yeah. Right yeah. to his face. It's like, what a moron. Yeah. Um, and then Beetle brings up uh, the Normandy invasion and they're planning. And Patton at this moment just jumps up and says, Great. And then goes into what's wrong with their plans. He just can't help himself, Steve. Yeah. Cannot shut up. (laughs) I kind of relate to Patton on this, by the way. (laughs) There are certainly times, I'm much better at it now. There are times, certainly in my youth, where I was like, they didn't want your opinion. You didn't have to give it. (laughs) Just shut up. And watch, by the way, the actor playing Beatle Smith during this and the pain on his face. I've drawn up an alternate plan which calls for a landing at Calais following an air bombardment. Please, will you just listen for a change? He's so good, that guy, too. Remember him? He's in 12 Angry Men. Oh! Yeah, he's the guy that has the tickets for the game in his pocket, burning a hole in his pocket. I no, thought no, that, that Jack no, no, that's Jack, that's Jack yeah, Gordon. Yeah, but he's the other guy that yells at him about it. Uh, mm. He's he's kind of the nicer guy with the uh, uh, kind of uh, brunette hair, slick back, a little mm. bit of Vitalis. He's really good. He's yeah. really good in this. Remember, Ike stood by you and everyone, and I mean everyone, wanted Patton with a rope around his neck. And you see that that hit Patton. Yeah. We're going to let it leak out that you are here undercover, that you're preparing to invade at the Pas de Calais. We hope to pin down the German 15th Army there so they can't be used against us at Normandy. People think I'm good for them. They they know that the Germans think Patton's the guy, and so they're yeah. going to build on that to fool the Germans into thinking the the invasion is coming from somewhere else. 
Frankly, George, you're on probation. If you take my advice, you'll behave yourself. Remember, your worst enemy is your own big mouth. And he walks out, leaving Patton alone, looking up at that mirrored ceiling. I think it's in a very interesting moment for him because here it is on the table, right? How many more people can tell him that it's his mouth? How many more people can tell him that he keeps shooting himself in the foot? And he still doesn't react. He still doesn't get it. Um, and he has these humbling moments. And yet uh, he just won't learn the lesson. He's too proud. He's too proud to learn the lesson. And they essentially were pulling a Hoosiers on him that they were going to have someone else take the final shot and use Jimmy Chitwood as the decoy. He is the Jimmy <laughs> Chitwood in this situation, and he's not happy about it. I can't believe how many times Hoosiers has come up now <laughs> in our discussion of Patton. Again, a cinephile's first. Like, I don't know. There's. I'm confident that nowhere else in the world has the critical analysis of Patton <laughs> included references to Hoosiers, multiple references. Um, I, I, I want to talk briefly about this uh, decoy, which was uh, it was actually a ridiculously insane operation. It's oh. called Operation Fortitude, and it was huge. So they had like Holly, you know, we have all these Hollywood guys that are working as part of in, in yeah. the army uh, that we have that five who came back movie. Well, they got a bunch of the Hollywood guys and particularly set builders to build like 500 inflatable tanks. Mm. They had uh, inflatable boats. They hired an actor, an Australian actor, to play Monty, who studied Montgomery for a long time and then was wandering around giving orders in uniform in this other location. They had planes dropping clouds of aluminum strips to give false radar reports to make it look like there was a huge fleet on its way. They dropped dummy parachute paratroopers like dummies with parachutes and dropped hundreds of them. um, And they were wired to simulate rifle sounds. So as soon as they hit the ground, the sounds of rifles and grenades would start going off. And they even dropped phonographs. So they would have voices of people talking in English like this was and massive amounts of radio transmissions, faulty orders. They had all sorts of like papers that they allowed the Germans to steal that had maps of the invasion. I mean, this was a huge, huge operation. And from everything I understand, it worked like they like there was thousands of German troops that were totally in the wrong place at the D-Day invasion. And we know from things like Saving Private Ryan how close to failure D-Day was. And you think if they hadn't done this, if Patton hadn't been out looking like he was leading a different army, we might not have won World War II. Yeah. Uh, We're with Patton. (laughs) He pulls up to another event and he comes out with this dog. (laughs) Look at this nasty face, son of a bitch. Look at this nasty face, son of a bitch, Captain. Bread for combat. I'm going to call him William, but William McConnell. (laughs) <laughs> and then he gets this, he gets scared by this tiny little yippy goat dog. Yeah. I love this moment. It's very funny. I'm terribly sorry, General. Did Abigail frighten your dog? Your name isn't William. It's Willie. And now again, he's going to make a speech. I don't understand why they set Patton up to make so many speeches. I think they're trying to humble him. I think they were trying to humble him. Uh, and I, it, But I agree with you, Steve. It seems like a dumb idea. To put, set this guy out into the world to make speeches who you know uh, has his mouth as his worst enemy. So why would you give him more opportunities to make these kinds of verbal mistakes? And his aide warns him before he goes up. Yep. And at first yep. he's doing very well. He's making some jokes. He has the great Bernard Shaw line that Americans and British are two people separated by a common language. Yeah. That is a fantastic witty line. Yeah. And then he says. 
And since it is the evident destiny of the British and Americans to rule the world, the better we know each other, the better we will do it. And his aide says, the Russians, don't forget the Russians. Um, and of course, this is, this is his next big putting his foot in his mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's what's weird to me about that line. I think that line sounds weird, period. Just the concept, like it is the destiny of the British and Americans to rule the world. Yeah. That is such a imperialist line, yeah, you know. I bet, I bet a lot of Americans feel that way, that the world is better run with America as the only superpower. I bet if you polled a major, I bet if you polled every person in this country, a majority of them would say yes. They feel more comfortable with that possibility than they do with any other possibility in the world. My, well, better my, or worse. My bet is that's changed a lot. Is that I think in nineteen forty five, yes, I think you if you polled mm. Americans, they would have said and we you know, we think about, you know, there's this ideas that have happened throughout the colonial history of Europe, you know, the idea that, oh, white Christian people should obviously know better. And so whether right. it's in India or in Africa or, you know, wherever it is in Hong Kong, we have the right system. So should we, we should be doing it. And of course, Americans had manifest destiny and right. this idea that we should be. And I think when you were in the middle of World War II and we were winning, it was like, well, of course, we are the indispensable nation. Yeah. But if you look today, um, really, on both sides of the political fence, there is a lot of going, hey, either uh, on the Trump side, we, sh- you know, it's America first. We shouldn't be dealing with you other people. You guys aren't pulling your yeah. weight. We're pulling away. Yeah. And on the on the liberal side, it's more the other countries have the right to decide for themselves. We don't know best. So why should we do that? And so really, I think there'd probably be a lot of people that would not feel that way anymore. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you look like you have like a million thoughts going on. No, in your head. I just don't. I just don't agree. I think even with the worst of us, it's still better than almost every other country uh, to rule as a first world power, um, because our intentions are still good. Uh, the execution of them has faltered over the years. Certainly, certainly, the people we've put in power have abused those powers at times. But I don't know a country without that in their history uh, who has ever been a superpower. You know, so it's just like I feel like we when we are at our best uh, and open and uh, receptive and smart and intelligent, I think we offer a great example to the world when we're at our worst. uh, For example, like things are now, uh, we don't offer, I don't know, as good of an option to the world as we can. So that's that's as that's as calmly as I can say it, I guess. But but I take your point, Steve. You might be right. Maybe more people would be like, "No, put Sweden in charge of the whole world, or put Denmark in charge of the whole world." I don't know. Or also, well, I don't think Zealand. anyone. Should, I don't think anyone should be in charge of the whole world. That's the that's the real oh, thing. Oh, you okay? Yeah. All right. Um, well, and you know, I think and I don't want to go too far down this. Yeah. We got a long movie to get through, but <laughs> but the. Um, I hundred percent agree with your statement that when we are at our best. We're really good at this. The yes. question is, how much are we really at our best? Yeah, it's a very good, you actually, know. it's a fair point, yeah. In cities all over the nation, mass meetings are held to protest General George Patton's statement that Britain and America will rule the post-war world, that Russia will have nothing to say. And we get back to Patton, who's again like, oh, they promised me there were no reporters. I told you to keep your mouth shut. You wouldn't listen. Don't you realize how suspicious the Russians are, the British and ourselves? I was only trying to be polite to the old ladies. 
If there'd been any Russians there, I would have mentioned them. I don't like the sons of bitches, but I would have mentioned them out of politeness. Which, of course, later on we found out is an absolute lie. But yeah, yeah. And 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 again, he's in the doghouse. And again, yeah. you know, he's begging to get back into combat. Um, and he walks down the hall, totally chagrined. Yeah. And he's alone in this great wide shot with his aide. I feel I am destined to achieve some great thing. What I don't know. I love this line, by the way. But this last incident is so trivial in its nature and so terrible in its effect. It can't be the result of an accident. It has to be the work of God. (laughs) Even in the doghouse, he's grandiose. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. (laughs) Like God... Yeah. He's taking his time out of the whole world just to focus on messing with Patton. Right, right. That's how important Patton is. In his mind, yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. The last great opportunity of a lifetime, an entire world at war, and I'm left out of it? God will not permit this to happen. I am going to be allowed to fulfill my destiny. His will be done. And he gives a look and walks out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you feel about this guy it's, now? It's narcissistic. It's grandiose. It's, um, you know, but the thing is, because he's actually good at what he does, he knows he's good at what he does. He knows that if he was put in charge, this war maybe would be over quicker than when he wasn't. And look, Steve, how we studied that we did the Civil War thing and broke down. How many other generals or other uh, uh, commanding officers felt that if they had run things on the Union side, this war would have been over so quickly and blah, blah, blah. So it's always the questioning from below of the leader up top. Always. The people down below think they know best. They know the right way to do this thing. But it's because they don't have the uh, all the information of the ins and outs uh, and all the things that have to be done. Like uh, what's-his-face tells him. You know, there's he's trying to keep this alliance together, uh, and it's a tenuous alliance at best. And you know, you got to make sure everyone's satisfied. Well, Pat wouldn't be able to do that. Pat wouldn't be able to be political. It's not his nature, uh, and that's that could have ruined the war and, and instead of won the war. It's funny you mentioned the Civil War, and, and another thing it came up in our discussion of the Civil War. It came up again just recently in our discussion mm-hmm. of 1776. Is this idea that I keep thinking about of we want to take the people who are on our team and give them all the good qualities, and we yeah. want to take the people that are on the other team and give them all the bad qualities. And yet, qualities are often very mixed up. And so yes. you have people who were brilliant generals on the Confederate side in the Civil War who were yeah. brave and intelligent and uh, and and are you know, like Nathan Bedford Forrest, horrible racist that found the Ku Klux Klan. And there are really admirable in terms of characters, people on the northern side who were terrible generals. Yeah. Yeah. And and here we have Patton as a perfect example of a, a person who there's no question anywhere in this film that he's not a great general. Right. It's all the other stuff. And it's like, well, do we have to set – and I think this goes to things that we're talking about in the world right now mm-hmm. – is do we have to settle – for with people that are less than ideal personally yeah. in order to get the great stuff that they can produce right. or do we or do we go it's not worth it to have a patent or whoever who's abusive and crazy and self-aggrandizing mm-hmm. uh knowing that we might end up with a does that mean we get a lesser general yeah yeah, yeah. i don't know yeah. the answer 
I have one quick story to tell, uh, which is that, I, as I mentioned before, Patton was in the doghouse way, way more than it's in this movie. He did all sorts of stuff to piss Ike off. Really? And at one point, oh, tons of stuff, tons and tons of over and over again. And so at one point, Ike calls him into his office in London to criticize him for whatever the latest one was. And I don't yeah. remember which one this is. Now, remember, these are two guys that have been friends. They play poker together. They hang out together. These were like really close friends. Yeah. When Patton walks into Ike's office at this point, Ike is lying down on the couch with a headache and Patton comes in and snaps to attention because this is now his superior officer. Right, right. And what and you served in the military, what would you would assume would normally happen, particularly with friends, is you say, Oh, at ease, stand easy, yeah. and you know, have a seat, George, and let's talk. Ike didn't do that. <laughs> he left him at his standing at attention. Ike is holding on to his helmet or something. I don't quite know how this all happened. Yeah. I'm sorry. Patton is holding on to his helmet and Ike just lays into him, lying on the couch, doesn't even get up, lays into him so much that Patton starts crying. Wow. So he's made Patton cry. And at some point, Patton drops his, his helmet. And so he's at attention and he's trying to get to his helmet and like some really awkward thing is happening and he's weeping, <laughs> you know, and Ike laying on the couch, just burst into laughter, laughs at him hysterically. Cause you know, this is a guy that's not sleeping. He's working his yeah. ass off. And now he has this, you know, old blood and gut standing in his office, fumbling with his helmet, tears going down his face. And Ike just laughs at him, but doesn't say at ease. He leaves him standing at attention, weeping while he's just laughing essentially in his face. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we've had the invasion. Patton has not participated in it. And now we're in an airplane um, and he's again studying history. And we, he says, this is how I get to the continent of Europe with the rest of the spare parts. <laughs> <laughs> and again, his kiss ass Cobb is like the greatest ass kisser oh, of oh, all time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sir, everything on this plane is high priority. General Bradley wouldn't send for you unless he had something in mind. And Patton says, yeah, I've learned my lesson. If I ever get a chance, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. And if I forget, you'll remind me. I'll give you a gentle nudge in the ribs. Give me a swift kick in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. We land in France. The first person we run into is Monty, who lays some nice shade on him. <laughs> oh, I hear you're doing a splendid job to coin the Germans. <laughs> and now we meet Brad, and we go into Brad's trailer. And this conversation is so interesting mm -hmm. to watch. We're going to make 3rd Army operational as soon as I can take over 12th Army Group. Do I get it? I'll be honest with you. I've had reservations. Man, you've been my senior ever since I left the academy. You were the boss in North Africa and Sicily, and I just thought, uh, well, it might be a problem for the both of us. And Patton, again, in his ass-kissing self, is like, no, that wouldn't bother me. <laughs> and then, and this moment is so interesting, because Brad goes on and says, There's one other thing. I don't want to hit this one too hard, but... We're different kinds of people, George. How long do you think Brad has been thinking about this conversation? Oh, probably ever since uh, it was first uh, floated as a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. He, he picks his words very carefully. Oh, yeah. Um, and Patton jumps up and says, You're right, man. God damn it. You're always right. With your brains and my screwy ideas, we'll make a wonderful team. We proved that in Sicily. He can't not jump up and try to take over in some weird way. Of course, of course. You know, it's it's like um, uh, there's a term for it, up managing. Have you heard this term? Yes, uh, but of please like, explain. 
uh, well, it's just I am an inferior and I'm going to manipulate my superior to do what I think is right. Right. You know, uh, and Patton is definitely trying to pull that one off. I tell you the truth. If I'd been your senior in Sicily, I would have relieved you. And that hits Patton hard. Yeah. Because it's kind of also it's a good opportunity for Bradley to make it very, very clear that you may be all about doing this. Just understand I do have the power. And yeah. if I had had the power in Sicily, this is what I would have done. So in the future, think about that. If you try to do something I don't approve of or you try to go off on your own again without clearing it with me, I will have you removed yep. from command. Yeah. And then you see the true vulnerability. He says, Brad, I'd crawl on my belly to get a command. Mm-hmm. Which then is what he's doing. Then shut the fuck up. Then yeah. shut the fuck up. It's like all on you, and you keep messing up. Yeah. And then, and then Brad kind of says, softens, and says, and this is why this was all his plan. He had planned out exactly what he was going to say, <laughs> and now he gets to the point of saying, you know, we've got this plan, and I'd like to hear your thoughts. Yeah. He establishes his dominance. He makes Patton literally say, I'd crawl on my belly for a command. <laughs> and then he goes over this plan, which is that there's going to be saturation bombing here, and we're going to put seven divisions through here, and we need Third Army to do this big sweeping end run. He says, right. what do you think? And Patton says, I think you need a screwball old horse cavalryman to command Third Army. George, Ike came to that conclusion in London three months ago. Yeah, which shocks Pat. It's brutal because he's been in the doghouse. Yeah. You know, it's just like, I think I mentioned what Marshall did to Patton when Patton said I needed two divisions or whatever it was for North Africa and Marshall iced him and didn't call him knowing that he was still going to give him the command. He just had to keep this guy (laughs) down, put him on a leash. Yep. And now we hear that great theme that I love. This whole next 25 minutes, most of it, is some of the most fun stuff in the whole movie. Yeah. This is where you see Patton at his best. And, and and we see him in his Jeep, planes going overhead, huge runs of trucks. We go through these gates. The music is great. We cut to Brad, who says, I think George would at least have the courtesy to let us know where he's going. And then we come through tank attacks and... After the tank attacks, some some American soldiers come out from under a bridge where they were getting shelter, and they see uh, Patton there going by in a truck, and they go, where are you going, General? And he says, Berlin, I'm going to personally shoot that paper-hanging son of a bitch! Patton really said that. And this is where you start to really like him. Yeah. You know, once again, once again, um, because he's in his element. Exactly. That's just what I was going to say. He's never happier or nicer or a more complete person than when he's in his element. And we see the casualties are lining up. We see headlines talking about Patton, of which George says or Brad says, give George a headline and he's good for another 30 miles. <laughs> well, and this is what I mean by when his ego aligns up with what he's supposed to do. Yeah. He's great. And that's what's happening right now. And now we cut to these, there's like mud and there's cars stopped and some soldiers are fighting and we see a huge convoy lined up. All right, now look, let's pay attention. We're going to clean this mess up right now. Let's move this vehicle out this way. This one out this way. All right, get up off your ass. Let's go now. And he steps on a stump and he starts directing traffic. Yeah. Amazing. Just so funny, man. 
See him, you know, he's that's the thing that's kind of he's not he's not unwilling to take any job to uh, to achieve the overall goal, right? As long as it involves him being near the action. And so even in this moment, he reduces himself to traffic cop, essentially, as you just said, for all of this, you know, and of course, Bradley rolls up and sees him doing it. It's funny as hell. Well, and he's having a ball. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like He's in command of the area. He loves it. Yeah. And, and it's working, you know, mm-hmm. like he, you know, we were in a complete snafu. Um, things have gone foobar. I'm using my two. Um, <laughs> wait, I know what foobar stands for. Snafu stands for some, oh, standard. Uh, it's something all fucked up. That's what snafu yeah. stands for. Uh, situation normal, all fucked up, I believe is what sna- snafu stands for. George, this drive to the Zane has been absolutely magnificent, but I'm sorry to say I'm going to have to slow you down. What the hell for? Well, for the time being, we're going to have to cut off your supplies. And we hear some of the politics that this is we need to get to where the V2 rockets are being launched from, which, of course, was true. And Patton is just pissed off. You give me that gasoline and I'll gain ground with it. I'll kill Germans, too. Give me 400,000 gallons, I'll go to Berlin. Do you think he would? Yes, of course he would. Which I bl- is exactly what Bradley told him. And Bradley's like, don't, you know, follow the plan, stay the course. But no. Still, his desire to be grandiose, his desire to do things his way, overwhelms his common sense. You won't let me kill the enemy? Why did you pick me to command? I didn't pick you. I picked you. How you like them apples? Yeah. Well, and it's such an amazing, like, Brad, throughout his whole movie, and really, Omar Bradley, he knew how to keep something under his vest, which Patton can't do. Yeah. Like he hasn't told Patton all his misgivings about him or that he was maybe argued against him getting this position. George, you have performed brilliantly. You are loyal, dedicated. You're one of the best field commanders I've got, but you don't know when to shut up. George, you're a pain in the neck. Yep. There it is. Yet another person telling him. Yep. And Patton, you know, this is where he's pretty good. He says, I love, I have a lot of faults, Brad, but ingratitude isn't one of them. Hell, I know I'm a prima donna i admit it what i can't stand about money is he won't admit it this is the one relatable moment i have with pat (laughs) (laughs) because i i am the same way i don't like i know that i can be a bit of a diva about some things and and i but i also feel like i've earned that status with the stuff i've done uh other people who claim to not be and pull the same stuff frustrates the living shit out of me because being being massively unaware of who you are as a person can really grate on me uh, uh, overall, you know. So I, I understood exactly what he was saying. That being said, though, if you want to be accepted for the way you are, you have to accept Monty for the way he is because they're both divas just in different ways. Well, and he doesn't know what Monty is like in private. Maybe Monty right, says the Monty. same thing. Yeah, maybe he is. Yeah, maybe he does. Maybe he does. Yeah. Well, I, I think your point of, of you know, if you're going to want people to accept your craziness, then you need to accept their craziness. I think that is 100% right. And I think in, in, you know, all sorts of ways in our world, you hear people talking about you have to be more tolerant. You have to be more accepting and yelling at the other side. And it's like. <laughs> acceptance and tolerance is almost always something that people demand for themselves rather than something that people do unto others. Yeah. They, they, they demand it of others. They do not demand it of themselves. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, of course my opinion is like, look, if you know, you're being a prima Donna work to change that, 
particularly for Patton, because yeah, yeah. He, he's he literally over and over again, he's not getting to do what he wants to do. Um, by the way, one of the interesting things uh, from reading that book is that actually at this point, uh, Omar Bradley and George Patton, they were getting along great. Oh, wow. And the okay. reason they were getting along great was both of them are really pissed at Ike. <laughs> because because uh, uh, what we just hear is happening is happening all the time. Resources are getting pulled away from the American military okay. and getting sent to the British and other places. And and Bradley is furious at Ike. Yeah. And Patton's right with him, of course. Yeah. Um, Cutting what they're trying to do. And right now we see the results of exactly what we talked about, which is you take gas away. And now we see this column of tanks and they run out of gas and there are some Germans and there is a battle. Oh, man. There's just sitting ducks. Yeah. And it's the next day. Patton comes over this beautiful green lush hill into the battlefield. And we see burnt out tanks and burning tanks and wounded men and dead Germans. And Patton walks forward and finds the soldier. I think this scene is amazing. Yeah. My tank platoon was supporting an infantry company. Tanks ran out of gas. So we had to fight it out. This morning, the fighting was hand to hand. And that's once again, this is what I like about this movie, uh, Steve. For all the nuttiness of Patton and all this, uh, the inner workings of the politics of, of leading, there is enough of the actual soldier on the ground to remind you of what the cost is, is of everything that they're doing. You know, uh, that scene earlier in the film where the, guy, the two guys walk up, yep, his blood, oh no, his guts, our blood, or something like that. Yeah. Just showcasing how, you know, him slapping the soldier, but then giving a very, uh, at best, rudimentary apology in front of the entire, uh, you know, uh, list of people that are standing there, including that soldier. He never goes down and personally talks to that soldier, but you see the pain, the anguish on his face of him having to endure this situation, you know, so you see it. And then once again, in, in here, you see the way he's talking about it. Or at the beginning, you see the way they those soldiers are getting pillaged uh, who have been killed for their goods and their rings and their clothes and their boots. Uh, and here in the same situation, you know, look, this is what happened. This was the decision. And these are the people. Uh, this is the devastation of these decisions that are being made. Once again, it's not a pro-war movie like something like the Green Berets. It's full on showing you the cost of uh, what this war was in World War II uh, to a lot of people. You know, I, I think that's 100 percent right. And the and this is why we're in this Vietnam era war, because it is the shot of the German and the American fighting hand to hand, both dead with a dagger in one of their chests. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, shot uh, we wouldn't have seen. Yeah. And it's not that other war movies haven't shown brutal scenes, you know, sure, sure. Uh, attacking the Turkish column in Lawrence of Arabia, where he ends up covered in blood, holding the dagger. Yes. is brutal. Yeah. But it's not brutal in this particular way. You know, mm-hmm. the the sort of just here's the aftermath of a battle and here are the bodies and just right. look at him. And Patton's response to this guy is to kiss him on the forehead. Yeah. I had a dream last night. In my dream, it came to me that right now the whole Nazi Reich is mine for the taking. Think about that, God. I was nearly sent home in disgrace. Now I have precisely the right instrument at precisely the right moment of history in exactly the right place. Moment like this won't come again for a thousand years. All I need is a few miserable gallons of gasoline. He might be right, by the way, in in terms of the military strategy, but it's still so much about him. Of course. What about the fortifications that were done in Metz? 
Fixed fortifications are monuments to the stupidity of man. Now, when mountain ranges and oceans can be overcome, anything built by man can be overcome. That's very true. And like a lot of the things like the Maginot Line and all that, yeah. you know, we talked about before that you're always fighting the last war. Yeah. You know, and so all of these fixed fortifications were built because that's what worked in World War One. Yeah. But with air power and fast, powerful tanks and really good artillery, those fixed fortifications don't help you at all. Yeah. The last thing he says is, I love it. God help me. I do love it. So I love it more than my life. That's my favorite line of the movie, because it is finally Patton admitting, like, you know, how much of a slave he is to this thing, this feeling, you know, and he's willing to say or do or grovel or anything to get this. It's almost like a drug to him, you know. God help me, I do love it so. It's the same moment that uh, Duvall has in Apocalypse Now, you know, when he's like, someday this war's going to be over, or someday this war's going to end. And he just stands there and just doesn't even finish the sentence, doesn't even finish the next thought, just lets it hang in the air, linger. Because some people, and having been in the military uh, for a few years, some people, they l- just live for this, man. They, they, there's a drug aspect to it for them, uh, and they do love it in a way that's that they understand is shameful, yet they cannot stop themselves from loving it. It's so funny that you said Duvall, because literally in my notes, the line that I have is, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Right. You know, smells like victory. That's the same. Yeah, kind of, because for him, that's the joy of it, right? In this moment, this is a revelatory, vulnerable moment from Pat, where he's almost, almost apologizing for the fact that he loves it as much as he does. Well, in in addition to him being at his best when he's directing traffic, he's also at his best in the moment in the hospital before the slap when he kneels down and he pins the medal on the guy and prays. And the moment where he kisses the captain is the same moment. And the I do love it. So I love it more than my life. I think that's what because and I'll say it later on, which is we'll talk about where's the heroism, you know, like heroism and individual glory and bravery. All those, that's what draws him. You know, yeah. that's what Patton believes in. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we see some Germans advancing, and then Patton is with his guys, and he says, Absolutely no reason for us to assume that the Germans are mounting a major offense. The weather is awful, the supplies are low, the German army hasn't mounted a winter attack since Frederick the Great. Therefore, I believe that's exactly what they're going to do. Yeah. And what do we see? The Germans attack through the winter. And Patton goes to his guys and says, I want you to come up with contingency plans for pulling out of our current battle and turning 90 degrees. And here are three possible places that we might end up going. And then we end up a meeting with the big generals. And basically, they say that the the Germans have surrounded Bastogne, which is where some of the airborne uh, divisions are. If we can hold it, we can break up the entire German offensive. If they take it, we're in serious trouble. Ike wants to know if anybody can get up there and relieve the 101st before they're torn to pieces. And the British guy goes, well, Field Marshal Montgomery can't do it for a couple of weeks. Yeah. They turn to George and he says, I can attack with three divisions in 48 hours. <laughs> then they're like, what are you talking about? We want a realistic plan here. 
Um, and this is why, you know, in the previous scene, he had said, I want you guys already planning to do this. But what about your men? You can't pull them out of the line and cart them off a hundred miles and then expect them to attack without rest. I train these men, Arthur. They'll do what I tell them to do. Uh, perhaps we hadn't realized that you were quite so popular with your troops, General. I'm not. They'll do it because they're good soldiers. So I'm sure you've had the coach, John, or the teacher or the someone that pushed you farther than you thought you could go. Sure. Yeah. Sure. What, what you trust, when you trust that coach, you're trusting that they actually know your limitations better than you do. Right. You're handing yourself over to that person. Right. Yeah. When I was first doing martial arts, uh, there was this teacher of mine named Eric Reichert. And he's sort of where the core martial arts knowledge for me has. And we trained all the time in the park and we were working on getting the splits. Yeah. Now I never got the splits, um, but we did serious, serious, extremely painful stretching to get them, mm-hmm. you know, and so, so that I could kick, you know, way over my head and stuff like that. I can't do any of those things anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but back in the day when I was 21, I could. Yeah. And um, there was one time where I'm wearing a karate gi and I'm in like sitting and I have my legs spread wide and I have uh, Eric pushing me against the wall and pushing my feet open. Mm. And it's very painful. And it's, it's like another inch, another inch, another yeah. inch. And I'm going. Gah! And uh, then he I'm wearing a karate gi. So he reaches and grabs my belt and pulls towards him, him while pushing my feet open. Wow. It was among the most painful experiences I've ever had. Yeah. Literally, the world went white. It went, and I couldn't see anything. And then he released my belt, and the world came back. I couldn't <laughs> breathe. I couldn't speak. Thanks. And that day, I kicked higher than I ever heard. My, my hips had opened up. Like, it totally changed the way that I was able to kick because of this one moment. And then that was, and then that, I made huge progress in terms of my flexibility. Yeah. And I trusted him. He, because if he had pushed it a millimeter too far, he would have injured me. Right, right. That he knew better than me. I would never have done that to myself. Right. Years later, I was having some back pain and I went to a chiropractor and he was doing, having me do a stretch and he had a guy come in and sit on my back when I was doing a butterfly stretch. That's when I herniated a disc. Wow. So, and what, and the reason I bring it up is like, I trusted that this chiropractor knew how yeah. far he could push me without hurting me. Right. And he pushed me just that little bit too far. Right. Um, and this is the thing I think about with George talking about, I know these men, I train them, they'll do it because I tell them to. Right. And he was right. In this circumstance, he's totally right. Yeah. But there's also ones where he could have been wrong. Yeah. Like Grant. Grant knew how far to yep. push the Union Army and whatever. And Lincoln at times questioned him, but, you know, he knew what to do. Um, well, it worked. Our drill sergeant in the army, yep. Steve, you don't know what you can do till you're up at <laughs> yeah. 5 a.m. in the dark and he's just like on you. You just don't know what you can do. But afterwards, the fact is that you feel like you can do anything. And that's the kind of point of the, of that exercise. Well, that's the, I mean, that's really what I was trying to say with my story mm-hmm. of the stretching is like, mm-hmm. I needed, I would never have pushed myself as hard as I got pushed in those circumstances. Yeah. And that's an amazing experience, you know, and it teaches you so much about yourself. We're uh, marching through snow. George is on the tank. It's all very exciting. There are explosions. And we hear George say, and this is everything we've been talking about. This is where it pays off. The training and the discipline. 
No other outfit in the world. Pull out of a winter battle, move a hundred miles, go into a major attack with no rest, no sleep, no hot food. God. God, I'm proud of these men. God, I'm proud of these men. Is he sincere here? I think he is, yes. I do too. And then there's this great moment where you have soldiers marching and George steps out and marches with them. Yeah. I think this is the high point of the movie right here. Yeah. He's smiling. He's happy. He's one with his soldiers. He's not against them. And they're doing something amazing. And they all feel that together. Right. Unfortunately, the weather's bad. And they need good weather and uh, so they can get air power so that they can uh, complete their attack to save Bastogne. Yeah. Um, but we're not going to get good weather. There goes our air cover. So we may have to pull up and wait for better weather. And Patton wigs out. I'm not going to wait. Not an hour. Not a minute. We're going to keep moving. Is that clear? We're going to attack all night. We're going to attack tomorrow morning. If we are not victorious, let no one come back alive. Yep. Just we're starting to feel good about it. And there are looks. And then this is my favorite moment of the movie, I think, mm-hmm. which is Cobb comes up to him as George has walked away and Cobb says, you know something, General? Sometimes they can't tell when you're acting and when you're not. It isn't important for them to know. It's only important for me to know. I have such a different reaction to this now than I did when I first saw it as a 13-year-old. Right. Because as a 13-year-old, I totally bought it. Yeah. I went, oh, man, he was just acting there. Wow. He's so in control and manipulative. And all these grandiose moves are all part of a carefully figured out plan to get what he's trying to get. Right. I don't think that anymore. Yeah. My reaction now is bullshit. Okay. He wasn't in control in that moment. Mm. He doesn't know if he was acting or not acting. Right. This wasn't this was just him being him. And then. Hearing this guy's line, he's reconstructed what that moment was mm. for this response. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. It, it's all the narcissist uh, justifying his shitty behavior. Of course. Like we see with directors that we've talked about before, right? I mean, it's not important for the actor to know if I'm kidding or not. It's important for me to know. You know right. It's that kind of thing. It's like, no, you're just covering up for the fact that you're an asshole. Right. You know, well, and this is the thing. And this is what I, again, this is a much older version of me thinking about this film. But one of the things we talked about in the last act with the attack of Sicily is he pushes that general and says, we're going to attack tomorrow. He he says, well, we need a couple of days. And George's like, you're not pushing your men hard enough. And then it ends up that George wins. Yeah. And so our conclusion is that he's right. Yeah. But it's a close run thing. And it, he just as easily could have been wrong. And then oh, yeah. he would have gotten a lot of guys killed for uh, his ego and wanting to beat Monty to Messina. Right. In this circumstance, everything depends upon the weather clearing. Yeah. If the weather doesn't clear and George gives these orders, we're going to fight tonight, we're going to fight tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. And if we're not victorious, let no one come back alive. If the weather didn't clear, this could have been a complete disaster. Oh, yeah. And and because George doesn't listen to reason, he is not a reasonable person. Yeah. But fortunately, we're going to call the chaplain over and we're going to have him write a good weather 
prayer so we can win this battle. Weather prayer, sir? Yes, let's see if you can't get God working with us in this thing. going to take a pretty thick rug for that kind of praying. I don't care if it takes a flying carpet. And, and the chaplain, of course, is going, I don't think I can really make a prayer that's going to get clear weather so we can kill our fellow man. That doesn't seem right. Well, I can assure you, sir, because of my intimate relations with the Almighty, if you write a good prayer, we'll have good weather. <laughs> He's such a ridiculous person. He is. Yeah. But once again, pushing the chaplain like he pushes his men. Yep. That is his default uh, gear, man. Well, and it was God's fault that he wasn't in the battle before, and now he's talking about his intimate relationship with God that he can make it stop snowing. Yeah, God wouldn't let this happen. He wouldn't let me be out of the mix for this war. No way. Well, and this is the other thing about the narcissist is that when the good things happen, it reinforces the worldview that he does have a perfect relationship with the Almighty. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was kept out of the war so he could come back in and do this spectacular thing. It Mm -hmm. is all part of God's plan. Humans have an incredible ability to create narratives for themselves. And he gets his prayer, and we're out in the snow, and he opens up his the little prayer that's written down. He puts on his glasses. We hear that religious theme. He takes off his helmet, and he says, Almighty and most merciful Father, we humbly beseech thee of thy great goodness to restrain this immoderate weather it's a, it's a good prayer. Yeah. <laughs> and what's really interesting is but pay attention to sound design when you watch the scene because the uh, natural sound, like he's walking right next to a tank. Yeah. If you've ever been near a tank when it was moving, that is not a quiet vehicle. No. You don't hear the tank. You don't hear the snow. You don't hear the wind. All you hear is the music and George C. Scott's voice. Yeah. Grant us fair weather for battle. Graciously hearken to us as soldiers who call upon thee, that armed with thy power, we may advance from victory to victory. And this is a beautifully shot moment. And this, again, is so much out of the 70s filmmaking, (laughs) because we see the violence and the explosions and the death as we hear Patton giving this prayer to God to give them good weather. And it is brutal, and it is really beautiful. I think. Yeah. Agreed. Like there's this one shot of this soldier who gets shot in a field of snow and he falls. And then there's a huge explosion, which just momentarily lights up the whole landscape. Yeah. It's just beautiful in this really brutal, brutal way. Amen. Guess what? Prayer worked. (laughs) Get me that chaplain. He stands in good with the Lord and I want to decorate him. (laughs) They succeed in relieving Bastogne, and we hear that uh, from a newsreel, we hear that during this operation, Third Army moved farther and faster and engaged more divisions in less time than any other army in the history of the United States. Yeah. All of which is true. Like, Patton's performance in this time of the war is pretty incredible. Uh, We're in Germany, and now the Germans are burning all their maps and their papers and trying to destroy everything. And we have Steiger's last moments looking at this photo of Patton, yeah, yeah. which, by the way, totally looks like a headshot to me. Of course. <laughs> you know what I mean? It looks exactly like a headshot. And Steiger says, he too will be destroyed. The absence of war will kill him. Yep. The pure warrior, a magnificent anachronism. I remember you talking about that line in the in the first act. So 
What do you think that means? Which part? The absence of war will kill him. We are, by nature, an interesting species. And I think there are people who are born into the world who have a proclivity to be damn good at battle, damn good at war, uh, damn good at fighting. They are driven to be a part of it or to create it in their own lives because it's almost an unconscious desire or subconscious desire um, to be in battle with something. Uh, and someone like Patton, someone like we just mentioned, Robert Duvall in Apocalypse Now, soldiers like that, those are lifers, what they call lifers. And it's because there's that chance that they can go to war. They're the first ones to volunteer, to lead anything, to be a part of it. Because they need it. And at times, they're the first ones to kind of instigate stuff because they need it in, in a bit of a selfish pursuit to be involved in a war. Uh, they will advise to start a war. They'll achieve high levels of command to start a war so that they can, you know, uh, shine or feel that juice again. And so that's what I think. I think some people are just built who are drawn to it in an instinctual, organic way. Uh, uh, because they sense they're good at it. And it's the one place they know they can be in control, right? We saw that in Hurt Locker when Jeremy Renner and a microcosm of what a lot of these uh, soldiers go through come back to the civilized life and they can't function within it because it's not as clear cut as it is in the military. There's not this, the battles you have to fight are completely psychological, not physical. Uh, and so there's a sense that like, oh, I don't feel as in control or as in power here as I do on a battlefield or in the military. And so I, that's what I think. I think there, there are just some people who are built to be that uh, and cannot function in a world of peace uh, because uh they just don't like it. They're not used to it. Uh, and it goes against their very nature as human beings. You just made me think of so much. That's, that, was, that was so great. And the, the first thought I had is that I think there is a weird way. We talked about Patton really not being in control of himself and not knowing himself and yeah, doing yeah. – But I think in a weird way, he, what you made me realize is there is an aspect where he really does know himself. Oh, yeah. He's he knows aware of himself. Yeah. He knows that – in times of battle, that is him being his ideal self. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's being who he's supposed to be. And we see it too, is that when he sh shoots the mules or when he's directing traffic or when he's, you know, fighting Rommel in that first big battle, like he knows who he is. He knows what he's supposed to be and he is great at it. And what we see is every time that it's not that, he's a mess. He's a mess. An yeah. absolute mess. Yeah. yeah. He, and so, and I think... All of his insecurities and all of his narcissism and all of his pain, it all just comes out in the worst ways, except when he's in the middle of battle. And when he's in the middle of battle, then he, he knows who he is, what he's supposed to do. And so this idea, like I hadn't thought of it quite in that way until you said what you said, is that, is that Steiger's completely right, is that this is who he is. Yeah. And he's not, it's the only aspect of himself probably that he's actually comfortable with, you know, yeah. is the guy in battle. The other thing that you made me think of, I'd never thought about so many connections with Apocalypse Now is mm. that one of them, because both of you and I thought about Duval, yeah. you know, with when Patton says, you know, I do love it so. Um, but what I wasn't thinking about until you just said this is, is that he's Martin Sheen too, is Martin Sheen goes home. But he can't yeah. be home. Nope. He's only fit for war at this point. Yep. You know? 
Charlie was um, getting stronger in the bush while I yeah. at home. Yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 Patton saying, you know, the most important war is happening right now, and God won't let me in. Like, like he needs to be in that place in the same way that uh, Martin Sheen has to be in that place. Um, the war is over. <laughs> We're in a big celebration. I got to tell you, I love Russian dancers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and these guys are awesome. <laughs> and I love we the have, whole scene. <laughs> we have our, our American guys sitting at one table and the Russian guys sitting at the other table. And the American guys are watching these amazing Russian dancers and just giving them nothing. Yeah. <laughs> like, just like, don't care. And then they bring over the caviar and all of the American officers studying with Patton say no. Like Patton says no. And then everyone else says no, because the big general said no. Except for this one dude who's like, yeah, I'll take some caviar. <laughs> I love that they, he starts to eat it and they all look over at him and then he has to put it away and i'm like let the dude eat the caviar <laughs> like what's the problem here it's the pressure man <laughs> excuse me sir general katkoff would like to know whether you will join him to drink to the surrender of germany my compliments to the general please inform him that i do not care to drink with him or any other russian son of a bitch <laughs> this moment is amazing i love this moment man i love it. <laughs> Because, you know, anyway, go, go through it, then I'll tell you why. Yeah. But, yeah. So the translator's like, uh, I can't tell the general that. And he says, no, tell him exactly what I said word for word. And he goes and starts to translate. And you watch the Russian general's face because at first he's smiling like you do when you're going to go through some right. polite ritual. And then you see the moment that he hears, you know, any other Russian son of a bitch. And his face falls. And there's a long reaction. And then he says something, and the translator says, the general says he thinks you are a son of a bitch, too. <laughs> okay. I'll drink to that. One son of a bitch to another. And they laugh. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, this is uh, strength versus strength, right? A lot of people talk totally. about the fact when you negotiate with Russians, you have to so, show strength. Russians don't expect it. And all through House of Cards, same thing. Uh, when I finished, I just finished watching that a few weeks ago. Like, it's all when the Russian uh, premiere is involved in the last three seasons, like, it's all about conveying strength. It's all about conveying power. And uh, that's how you negotiate, right? And in this situation, like, he went back at the Russian hard, and the Russian respected that, and was like, "I think you're a son of a bitch too." And then he goes, and then Patton just kind of like, <laughs> "All right, I'll drink with that son of a bitch." And, and they it's great even because he respects it too. Yeah, and they even do the arms cross yeah. through each other drink. <laughs> I know we don't do that enough. If we ever, if we ever get out in the world again, Sean, don't you think we should do? No, I feel like we have done it enough, Steve, and that should probably be something we don't do ever again. Okay, fair, fair. It's so funny because I think this scene is just as you describe. It's like he, they respect each other's strength, and they actually have an interesting moment. Patton's literally been in the doghouse the whole time for talking smack about the Russians. This is not a good thing to do. You can't help Um, himself again. Yeah. Nope. We're in uh, some kind of a horse arena, and Patton is riding, and the. Reporters are asking him questions. One of the questions, by the way, is whether or not he's going to go to the Pacific to serve under MacArthur. And there's no, and and actually, Omar Bradley and Patton knew that MacArthur would never want them on their staff. Yeah. They didn't get along before. Um, And then they they ask Patton about um, these wonder weapons the Germans were working on that don't need soldiers. Wonder weapons? Thank God I don't see the wonder in them. Killing without heroics, nothing is glorified, nothing is reaffirmed. No heroes, no cowards, no troops, 
No generals. Only those who are left alive and those who are left dead. I'm glad I wanted to see it. I think this reveals so much. Mm-hmm. Like the whole point of war. This is he just said what the point of war is to him. Yeah. To have glory, honor, and to reaffirm things. Yeah. That there is a connection in Patton's mind between victory and truth. Yeah. That it's the um, that the Americans being able to win the war prove that the American way of life is the right one and that really that God favors America because it reaffirms everything. If the Americans were to lose, then it would prove that the Germans are right. Yeah. Yeah. That is so ridiculous to me in my way of thinking, you know, good doesn't always triumph. The reasons that we win are not because we are good. The reasons you win is because you win, Mm -hmm. you know, like I think, democracy and freedom are good things and that that's good and that they will help us lead a more successful society, but it doesn't winning a battle doesn't reaffirm that we were right in my mind. The, the, the other thing I was thinking about is we're entering this world of no soldiers and my problem with it, because we have all these drones and all these automated weapons, you know, and even even the uh, uh, military robots that I know you're a big fan of. Yeah, 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 sure. And <laughs> I think them all. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Patton's reason for why this is a bad thing is actually the opposite of mine hmm. is that without humans, we don't have human controls making one of the movies that Hoover and I were working on was a movie called remote control, Mm -hmm. which was one of the things it focused on was the fact that guys run drones from, you know, some office building in Nevada, you know? And so they never come face to face with the things that the effects of what they're doing. Yeah. The more we remove humans from war, the more callous we become. Mm -hmm. So Patton is mourning the heroics and, you know, risk and glory and reaffirming things. And I'm mourning, it's very scary what could happen when we no longer have humans involved in war. Yeah. It's been pointed out, General, that you're still using former Nazis in key positions, despite the official denazification policy. Well, if I'm supplied with trained personnel, I'll get rid of the Nazis. Until then, I'll use the people who can run the railroads and keep the telephones working. First of all, are there any other movies that this makes you think of? Uh, Nuremberg, maybe? No, no. What are you thinking? Lawrence, T. Lawrence, oh in, right in Damascus. Is Damascus, that, yeah. Well, and what it also makes me think about is our war in Iraq. Yeah, is that we wanted we got rid of all of Saddam's people that were yep. running things, and the electricity didn't work, the water supply failed, yeah, like all these things. And so the balance between we don't want to reward the Nazis and keeping the country working is actually a really complicated uh, question. Yeah. Um. Here's a couple more things about Patton. He's pretty anti-Semitic. Oof. And one of the big things was he had no sympathy for people that lost. Mm. Is that because remember what he sets up at the beginning of the movie is Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. The fact that the Jews had been oppressed for so many years and then what happened to them in World War II was proof that they weren't worthy of his respect for Patton. Uh, in fact, he one of the things he said is because he could always get trouble um, in trouble in the press. And he said, there is this very Semitic influence in the press. They're losing sight of Anglo-Saxon values yeah. that made America. Yeah. Him not denazifying actually revealed a bit more about him and his yeah. viewpoints than maybe we thought. 
However, one thing that's not in the film is Patton was there for the liberation of several of the concentration camps. Mm. Uh, he threw up and he wept uncontrollably at the liberating the concentration camps. But he didn't this he continued to be anti-Semitic. In fact, in some ways, that might have made him more anti-Semitic. It's crazy. Some people can take a group of people and they look at the accomplished group of people and are mad at those group of people, right? And that stems their or that is the foundation of their racism. It is not necessarily the entire race. It's a certain section. Some people can compartmentalize like that. It's crazy. That's why I would imagine he was able to cry and weep and vomit at seeing uh, the horrific uh, conditions uh, that Jewish men, women, and children were subjected to in these camps. Because to him, they don't represent what he's anti-Semitic at in his mind. It's other things, you know, and it's weird how some people can compartmentalize their racism like that, Steve. It's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of weird. So, well, I, I don't know. You and I have talked a lot of, about racism over the Man. last few months. Um, I don't think people think of themselves as racist or anti Semitic. That's fair, too. You know, I don't think he's, I don't think he's connecting the things. Right. You know, that's fair, too. Yeah. Um, then someone asks him, after all, General, didn't most ordinary Nazis join the party in about the same way Americans become Republicans or Democrats? <laughs> this should be red flag. <laughs> Don't answer. No comment. And he says, that's about it. <laughs> and then they ask him, you know, about civilian control of the military. And, and he says, yeah, we should have civilian control of the military. The politicians never let us finish. They always stop short and leave us with another war to fight. This is 1970. That's just going to say. This Vietnam. is Vietnam. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Shots um, of Vietnam. Yeah. Well, and, and, and this is why what we said at the very beginning is that this is kind of a litmus test for what your perspectives on the Vietnam War are. Yeah. Because there are people that would hear that line and say, yes, Patton is absolutely right. The politicians are preventing us from winning this war. Right. Right. And other people, people who are against the war say, are thinking, man, we cannot trust the military. They're going to use whatever means are necessary to move forward, even if it's dumb. Yeah. Um, but what we're talking about here is uh, Russia. You thinking about our Russian allies? And this trap he does see. He goes, no, no, I'm not going to answer that. Um, and some, someone Finally. asked him, yeah, and some, but it's still he can't shut up because then someone says, Sir, did you say if you found your army between the Germans and the Russians, you'd attack in both directions? No, I never said that. I never said any such thing. But I wish I had. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, right there. Can't shut up. Just shut up. How could you possibly compare the Republicans and Democrats to the Nazi party? Everybody is freaking out. The Russians are freaking out. This is where he loses it, by the yeah, way. Yeah. He totally loses it. Well, the war shouldn't be over, and we should stop pussyfooting about the goddamn Russians. We're going to have to fight them sooner or later anyway. Why not do it now when we got the army here to do it with? Instead of disarming these German troops, we ought to get them to help us fight the damn Bolsheviks. <laughs> Very interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> wow. You know. But, I mean, in retrospect, maybe not wrong. Because of what happened, uh, you know, five, started happening a few years later, the Cold War started, uh, you know, uh, going on in, the, in between the United States and the, and the uh, Russians. And in that moment, what he's saying is, if we do this, 
that Cold War probably never happens because we take control of that situation. You know, am I saying it's right? No, I'm just saying that's his logic uh, could hold could bear fruit if you had followed it. You know, could have that, that is definitely his logic. Yeah, I think any student of history of which Patton was, yeah, should be very trepidatious about marching into Russia. Yeah, well, of course, the uh, yeah. In, in general, it doesn't winters, go yeah. well. And, and you look at, I mean, you know, we in the U.S. Tr- tend to take a lot of credit for winning World War II, <laughs> and certainly we're a big part of winning World War II. Sure, sure, and definitely our factories and industrial power is a big part of winning World War II. Yeah, yeah. But the British who hung on against England after France fell and most of Europe fell, yeah, and they're getting constantly bombed during the Blitz. That's amazing. Yeah. And all of that pales into comparison to what Russia did. You know, the millions of people that died in Russia, and we don't even know, it's like 20 or 30 million people died. Yeah. But, you know, the the, the siege of St. Petersburg um, is insane what they put up with. I think that the biggest battle, biggest air battle of all time is one we've almost never heard about, which is a Russian-German air battle, which had like tens of thousands of planes involved. I mean, like, it's so the idea that now we, with a way smaller army than Russia, are going to just start marching into the Soviet Union, taking them on. I think (laughs) what we would have seen was millions and millions of people dead. Yeah. You know, so, but we can't know. Maybe George was right. Um, well, and this goes to one of the key things is like uh, the philosophy of, you know, do you strike first right. or do you hope for peace? You know, do you deal with lots of little, you know, you know, all the things that happened during the Cold War? Is that better or worse than having a hot war from 1945 to 1950? Yeah. You know, who That's knows? Yeah. Well, I don't give a damn if it is. I'll tell you something, Beetle. Up until now, we've been fighting the wrong people. Look, you and I don't have to get involved. You're so damn soft about it. You leave it to me. In 10 days, I'll have us a war with those sons of bitches, and I'll make it look like their fault. That's full crazy. I, yeah, this is exactly full crazy. <laughs> Beetle hangs up on him. We cut to a door, and George has come out of what we can only assume was a meeting with Ike. Yeah. Um, he looks completely beaten down. It's very quiet. What's really interesting is right next to that door is a bust of Julius Caesar. Yeah. Yeah. I think Caesar and Rome play such a big part in sort of the thematic background of this film. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so much so that he puts it like, you know, Patton says it a little bit later on at yeah. the end of the of the film. Yeah, That's what we're going to get to. Yeah. By the way, Ike did relieve Patton at this point. Basically, Patton was a terrible military governor, yeah. and he relieved him. And George thought that was he did it purely because Ike wanted to be president of the United States. That's that's why George believed he was relieved. Uh. <laughs> and that was officially the end of the friendship between George Patton and Eisenhower. Well, they've uh, taken Third Army away from me. I know. I just thought we could have dinner together tonight. Thank you. Well, that's damn thoughtful. I appreciate it. He's really nice, yeah. I think. Um, and He's political. A, yeah. Sense. yeah. Um, and they take a walk, and as they're walking, an ox cart gets free and almost hits George, and Brad saves him. After all I've been through, imagine getting killed by an ox cart. Oh, Brad, there's only one proper way for a professional soldier to die. That's from the last bullet of the last battle of the last war. Still romantic about it. Yep. 
And Brad says, I have a feeling that from now on, just being a good soldier won't mean a thing. I'm afraid we're going to have to be diplomats, administrators, you name it. And that is totally true. You talk about nation building. I mean, most of what the army has had to do in the last 20 years has not been fighting battles. No, no, right. It's been training the Afghani uh, military force to, you know, training the Iraqi military. Yeah. Rebuilding infrastructure. It's a lot of being diplomats. Yeah. I just said diplomats. Diplomats. <laughs> it's a lot of being diplomats. Um, <laughs> You've done a magnificent job here in Europe. That's right, George. I think that soldier you slapped back there in Sicily did more to win the war than any other private in the army. How crazy is that? How crazy is that that he would say that to him? I think it's nuts. I don't I, even quite know what he means. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that he brought George to heel uh, because of that situation. And so George was more controllable throughout this whole sequ- uh, uh, last few years of command. What do you Well, there's, there's also that because George slapped the soldier, he was the decoy that decoyed a lot of which he wouldn't have been. But the other thing is, what is the other big result of George slapping that soldier? Brad got the overall command. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's a weird way in which he's saying, you know, you getting me being in charge instead of you is what won the war. <laughs> um, That's true. Uh, and they say goodbye. And we have this really amazing shot of him walking Willie in a wide shot. Now we hear in voiceover, again, Coppola was reading a book on Roman history when he was writing the movie, and we hear, For over a thousand years, Roman conquerors returning from the wars enjoyed the honor of a triumph, a tumultuous parade. In the procession came trumpeters and musicians and strange animals from the conquered territories. And we're in this amazing high-angle shot of a, mm-hmm. looking through the, a windmill down at him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was very purposely a Don Quixote reference. The windmill. Oh, the director wow. put it in. Oh. It's a really cool shot. That makes sense. The conqueror rode in a triumphal chariot, the dazed prisoners walking in chains before him. A slave stood behind the conqueror, holding a golden crown and whispering in his ear a warning that all glory is fleeting. What do you think that means? Why, why do you think that's important for Patton? Well, because Patton, well, I think because, and it's ironic that they have him say it, but I think it's on purpose to have him say it, obviously, uh, because the message is you're hunting this thing that you'll never catch and that will always slip through your fingers and then you'll have to go hunt it again. So all glory is fleeting. It's momentary. So to pin... Your self-worth on something like that is uh, like trying to build sandcastles, uh, uh, you know, right there by the water. Uh, it's not a strong thing. Uh, it's not something that is going to last you forever and that eventually uh, it will fade. And what we have left, I'll make another connection to a sports movie. What, what, is, what does Adrian say to Rocky on the beach in Rocky Three? Because when all the smoke is cleared and everyone's through chanting your name, it's just going to be us. And you can't live like this. We can't live like this. And that's what it means. It's like chasing the glory without understanding why or working on yourself is an empty pursuit. And it will never lead to a peaceful, happy life. 
understanding why you want the glory is an essential nature of who you or essential component of who you are and understanding that glory is fleeting uh, will make you a better person. You know, who doesn't want to aspire to achieve great things in life? I think most people do, whether they do or not, whether they can or not is a whole other thing. But I think most people do. So, but to hunt it in the pursuit to be seen as somehow more worthy because you have it is what the fleeting part of it is, is that people move on quickly and they go, okay, what are you going to do next? And you're constantly having to pursue the next opportunity to catch glory. So this shouldn't be your driving force in life, glory or self-glory even. I, I think that's a great way to put it. And and I thought about something else, and this only comes from doing the cinephiles, which is going over this so slowly yeah. that this pattern emerged. You know, Coppola talks about the fact that he he was fired because this the movie was too artsy. Yeah. And the big artsy things were the opening monologue, mm-hmm. the speech, the uh, reincarnation stuff, and all the poetry stuff, and all of this Caesar history Roman stuff. Yeah. What's so interesting about this is it really proves the thing you said at the very beginning, which is that this is an anti-war movie masquerading as a war movie. Yes. What we see, and this is what I didn't put together. So we see him at the beginning at his most glorified. Mm -hmm. He's got all the medals, all the things that he probably never really wore in life. Every accoutrement of glory is on him. Standing in front of the American flag is the most glorious moment you could imagine. And then we go immediately to the least glorified moment, which is dead soldiers being robbed. Yeah. Yeah. And then we return to these ideas multiple times. He goes to this uh, a cemetery and he says, put a guard around this. I don't want this ransacked like everyone else, the Carthaginians, the Romans, all this stuff, because all glory is fleeting. And yeah. he is trying to preserve that. We see the moment where he has the helmet put on him like he's a king. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or we the bars. Or, or the, the bars or the, or the stars rather. Yeah. It's all about glory. And that, it, or he even says, um, talks about the, uh, uniform that he designed for tanks and it had a gold helmet, you know, and, and it was all about appearance. And then we have him, um, at that battle after yeah. the battle and saying, God, I love this, this moment of, of the glory of battle. And then when they ask him about armies with no soldiers he's like well what's reaffirmed where's the glory where's the honor and now in this moment in the very last moment of the film someone whispers essentially in our main character's ear all glory is fleeting yeah that it isn't the guy in the uniform in front of the flag in the most glorified moment it's the cemetery yep and forgotten and will all be forgotten yeah you know and that's why i think it's such a subtle and brilliant anti-war film Mm -hmm. because it's a really fun war film yeah and Patton walking his fierce dog willie (laughs) goes off into the distance past the windmill and as we fade to black we have reached the end of Patton. yeah it is a uh a mixed and unsettling ending yes you know Mm -hmm. um much like the ending of Lawrence of Arabia. I know I keep bringing that up as a comparison, but the ending of Lawrence of Arabia is definitely not with a bang. It's with a whimper. Yeah. You know, and this kind of feels like, oh, how am I supposed to feel about what I just saw? Yeah. On December 8th, 1945, Patton is in his car uh, behind a glass partition and they hit a truck at very low speed. There's just everyone in the car and the truck have very minor injuries. Patton is thrown forward into the glass divider behind his chauffeur in the car, uh, bleeds a lot. 
they try to get him out of the car and he can't move his legs. He can't oh. move his arms. Paralyzed with the neck down, having trouble breathing. They put him into traction. He dies 12 days later in Germany, never came home from the war. Wow. Yeah. <sighs> I didn't know that. I thought he stuck around for a while. Mm-mm. Wow. Died in 45. Jesus. Well, last yeah. bullet, the last war. Yeah. It, so short, so soon after the end of the war, he dies, right? And what does the yeah. guy say? And it's almost like, oh, no, I guess, you know, now in retrospect, because I, I didn't know that now that Cop- now Coppola puts it in the script, what Reichert yep. says, right? That idea of like, he's going to die too without a war to fight. And surely enough, that's what happens. I have one funny story about post-production. Sure. So uh, Coppola is up in the Bay Area in San Francisco, and he's formed his company, American Zoetrope, which is forever he tried to create the alternate to Hollywood studio where artists could do their great work in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it never really succeeded. You know, <laughs> no, it didn't. Yeah. Like there were, t- you know, certainly it made Apocalypse Now and The Black Stallion and produced some other films, but it never became what it wanted to became. And in 1969, they were out of money. They were really broke. It, you know, he hadn't hit yet. This is before he gets the Oscar, obviously, for this film. But one yeah. of the things they did have was they had a bunch of steam backs, which are uh, flatbed um, editing systems. So you put the film on on yeah. this big flatbed. And they're an expensive piece of equipment. They didn't have anything to do with their steam backs, so they rented them out. The company they rented them out to is the one making Patton. so he you know it's what's so funny is that he rented the equipment to make the movie that would win him in the oscar and it's really winning the oscar for this that made him get the chance to direct the godfather yeah i just think it's a funny story um obviously it was a big hit and made 27 million dollars richard nixon loved this movie it was his favorite film i don't it's not anti-war at all it's fantastic yeah well and all, all oliver stone says that basically the movie Patton led to genocide he th- he th- and this is oliver stone of course uh, but that yeah. the bombing of cambodia is because Patton said they you know that politicians wouldn't let the army do what they had to do to win the war yeah yeah you know now is there really a connection between those two things i don't know who can say uh, it was nominated for a whole bunch of things, uh, including director, screenplay, editing, sound, art direction, set direction, uh, cinematography, sound effects, music. Um, it won for Best Picture, uh, director, screenplay, editing, sound, art direction. Uh, it won seven Oscars, including Best Actor for George C. Scott. Yeah. Ryan Lieb, one of our supporters on Patreon, one of the new things we've done with our new Patreon tiers is we announce some of our films that we're reviewing in advance. If you're on Patreon, you will know well beforehand what we're going to record. And at a certain tier, you have the right to ask us some questions, which will be included in our episode. And this one comes from Ryan Lieb. And he says, how do you feel about George C. Scott's rejection of the Academy Award um, and his nomination for The Hustler and his attitude towards the Academy in general? Because what we should say, George won. Yep. He, he didn't come to the Oscars. Nope. He wrote a letter to the Motion Picture Academy saying that he didn't feel that actors should be in competition with each other. This is how he described the Oscars. The whole thing is a goddamn meat parade. I don't want any part of it. <laughs> now this is what two years later uh, uh, uh brando does the same thing 
Well, he sends a Native American yeah. woman to accept his Academy Award. Which is so. How do, yeah. how do you feel about this? I think you have every right to refuse an Academy Award if you don't want to win an Academy Award. And I, th- and I totally respect actors who are like, this is uh, this is a, a meat market, or this is just a, gl- a all glorious fleeting. Yeah. Winning this award that is uh, how many people have won this award and have never ever been able to reach the heights again of that award the the Oscars history is littered with people who've won this very you know sought after achievement uh, and have never come close to matching it or felt the or they felt the weight of it in their careers and it 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 ground them into dust so we've seen that happen so for him obviously he felt that the work is what matters not the awards and there are people who do feel that way uh, and I respect people who feel that way, you know, because I don't know. I just feel like that's that's uh, a very what's the word I'm looking for? Very healthy way to look at it. A gold trinket does not determine whether I'm good at what I do or not. You know, do people come to see my work? Do people enjoy my work? That's what matters. Not a gold trinket from my peers. I I couldn't agree more. And you just blew my mind. By connecting all glorious fleeting to <laughs> George C. Scott not accepting that Oscar, because I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Is that yeah. he chooses to do exactly the opposite of what Patton would have done. Yeah. Patton would revel in the glory oh, and, jo- yeah. and, jo- and George is like George C. Scott goes, No, it's yeah. not. And I I I understand why we have award shows. I sure, like sure. watching the Oscars every year. But I couldn't agree more. The idea of having a competition mm-hmm. for whose performance was the best is often just completely ridiculous. And then turning it into a a, a show to be uh, to no longer glorify movies necessarily, but more about trying to get ratings and young people to watch kills the whole point of what that entire ceremony was initially created to do, which was to remind people of the power of film, the glory, the love of film, uh, the, the, the power, what film can do emotionally uh, and how it can inspire you, how it can change the world and having producers on it who were worried about, Oh, we got to get young people to watch. We got to get, we got to nominate certain films that'll get young people to watch kills the entire point of that. It should be a night, four hours of celebrating movies uh, for those of us who actually love movies. You know, that's my agreed. Agreed. Um, Ryan Lieb also asks something we've really been talking about the whole time. He says the film is intriguing due to its time. It's it's release with America still dealing with Vietnam and the counterculture still going on. How do you see this as an influence on the politics and culture of the time? I think we've talked about this quite a bit already, but the, but the big thing that occurs to me, you know, Vietnam is the first televised war. Yes. And, at the time, the military didn't have as much control over what was being seen during the Vietnam War as they actually do today. Right. And one of the big things that was being seen in 1969 and 1970 was the bodies coming home. Yep. Um, and that makes me think about this film a lot because the thing that this film – this film really shows the bodies. Mm-hmm. It shows the ugly aftermath of war, and it continues to glorify the general in these amazing ways where he seems so heroic while also saying, this is the result. This is what it feels like. Yeah. And I really do think in the long I, – I, I do think it is both. You know, It's just as you said at the beginning of the movie, a war film, an anti-war film masquerading as a war film. Yeah. 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 And Coppola would double down on this a few years later with Apocalypse Now. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I think there is a real connection between Patton and Apocalypse Now. Yeah, absolutely. 
particularly if you take the, I'm just thinking about this now, but the, you know, as we've been talking about the poetic elements of Patton, yeah. which Coppola feels that's what he got in trouble for all these things we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. That's the core of apocalypse. Now Yeah, is yeah. apocalypse. Now is not a realistic movie at all. It's a allegory. It's poetry. It is this, you know, complex, difficult to understand, you know, uh, Roshark test, I guess. Yeah. That's fair. Well, John, do you have final thoughts on the epic film that is Patton? Yeah, this is one that I will always uh, revere because I think it is the way um, I look at war more than anything else. And having served, yet being someone who uh, does not run to a theater of battle because I want to achieve some kind of glory, understanding the necessity of war, but also understanding that we it should not be something we rush to do is all throughout this movie. You know, um, when something evil shows up, we have a responsibility to fight it. Um, but we do not have the responsibility to glorify it or revel in it or turn it into something bigger than it actually is. War is a necessity versus something that is uh, desired or should be desired. Uh, and I love the fact that it's anti-war and pro-war because I respect the service members who they lay down their lives, my fellow service members who lay down their lives and are hurt in war and battle to preserve our way of life, our idealistic and principled way of life, right? I want to make that clear what the foundations of our principles were, those people who lay down their lives for that uh, and risk their lives for that. Um, but by the same token, I also hate war, and I think war should never uh, be something that w- that damages so many generations of people. Uh, it's not just the people coming back from war. It's their children and their children's children who suffer through the effects of war uh, because of how they're brought up. They pass those bad traits sometimes on to their children, and they pass those bad traits on to their children. Uh, and so all of that is encapsulated. So I love this movie because I still enjoy watching Patton and the fantastic performance that George C. Scott delivers. But I also love the fact that it's just subtly, quietly, for the intelligence, for, so for the intelligent people amongst us who watch these films, uh, catching the anti-war message that is bubbling underneath the surface. It's a brilliant tightrope that this film walks. Uh, very well said. I like, I like everything you said. Uh, the thing, the thing that I keep thinking about with this film, mm. it keeps coming back to me to ends versus means. Mm. Do the ends justify the means? And I think people want to have sort of simple answers. We did this for this reason and it was worth it. Yeah, and, and and anyone who says no, no, the ends never justify the means isn't being realistic. And anyone who says, well, the ends always justify the means isn't being realistic. Is that this is a complicated thing, and dealing with a guy like George S. Patton is a lot of is he worth it? Yeah, you know. Yeah. And and I think in the case, you know, we always talk about World War II as the good war, mm-hmm. and where where Hitler was so terrible, and the threat from Japan was so terrible that. Yeah, if we kind of cut a few corners or did some stuff that maybe wasn't so good, it was worth it. That's generally how we think about it. Yeah. But I think we tend to apply that to everywhere we are. And I started thinking about like Saddam Hussein, Mm. which uh, we were so scared by the revolution in Iran that anyone who was anti-Iran became our ally. And so Saddam Hussein became 
well, we're going to deal with him. We don't really like him, but we're going to deal with him and support him and give him weapons and money in order to protect them from this other guy that we like less. And you look at all through the Cold War, that's what we do. You know, whether it's like uh, supporting the Contras against the Sandinistas, because that's part of the Cold War. Or, um, you know, in Afghanistan, this is the biggest one, is that we supported a whole bunch of radical Muslims, including Osama bin Laden and Mullah Omar, who's the founder of the Taliban, to fight against the Soviets. Because we went, the Soviets are the big, huge threat. And so whatever means we can use to hurt them, we're going to use. And then, of course, we see where that gets us into trouble later on. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like Patton, what if he had turned his army against the Russians? Right. There are so many places where he could have made choices that we go, oh, this would have gotten us into big trouble. And this is what's so hard. This is what I keep struggling with is that a character like Patton, and it goes back to what I said earlier, is is he worth it, you know, to get what you say you want to get? Um, And it's very hard for me to say. Yeah. Well, and I think about so many figures in history that are mixed people, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know. That were great in all these ways and terrible in all these ways. And are they worth it? That's, I guess, the big question. So uh, that's what we think of Patton. Of course, we always want to hear what you think. Uh, Please visit us on our Facebook page. Do a search for The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, uh, Google Play. Uh, Definitely leave your reviews on iTunes. They really, really help the show. So if you haven't reviewed the show, show yet, absolutely please do leave your comments on youtube uh you can support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles where you can hear our cinephile shorts you can as ryan lieb did ask a question about an upcoming movie um and you can also suggest a film that we will do in the future that's patreon.com slash the cinephiles you can follow me at sr morris on twitter on instagram at sr morris one you can follow the show on twitter at cine underscore files on instagram at the cinephiles podcast john how can they follow you you can always follow me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, please come and subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. You know, we're talking more film there. We talk more, uh, more kinds of uh, varied topics all over the place. Two new shows launching a Star Wars show and a politics show that uh, I'm doing with a a friend of mine, and so that's going to jump off on the channel as well. Please, it's YouTube.com/slash John Roca says, and I'm sure we'll have Steve on as a guest on that multiple times. So please go and subscribe there and. And uh, enjoy the work we're trying to build over there on the Outlaw Nation. Uh, I'm looking forward. I always love coming on the Outlaw Nation. And um, for those of you who have listened to this epic exploration of Patton and have never seen the film, well, you should head over to cinephiles.net where you can stream Patton from Amazon Prime along with every other film we've ever reviewed. So that is it for this week. We will see you next time with another great film on The Cinephiles. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.